This episode of Hockey Press Pass is presented in part by the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village. Unplug your game. Buy board games. Play board games. Food and drink. Fun. And friends. Kenny Albert, what are your three favorite arenas or stadiums in any sport to call play-by-play? Well, Chris, I have to put Madison Square Garden right at the top of the list. I've worked there for over 25 years. I love Lambeau Field, Fenway Park, Wrigley Field, a lot of the old hockey and basketball arenas as well. Called one game in Boston Garden, attended a game in Chicago Stadium, the old Montreal Forum. So I love a lot of the old traditional stadiums and arenas that no longer exist. I can understand that. You're listening to the Hockey Press Pass podcast presented by Instat Hockey. Today's guest is Kenny Albert, the rare play-by-play announcer in history to call games not just in the NHL, but MLB, the NFL, and the NBA. Kenny is the radio voice of the New York Rangers and a lead broadcaster in the first season of the NHL on TNT. Kenny, what is your, I won't ask you to rank them, but what is your favorite sport to broadcast? Well, it's sort of like asking which kid you like better, if you have three or four or five. Um, <laughs> or two. Up, hockey was my favorite, but the others were not far behind. Uh, played hockey a little bit as a youngster, wasn't very good. My goal was to broadcast hockey uh, on the radio. That was my goal. And uh, was very fortunate to get hired by a minor league team back in 1990, the Baltimore Skipjacks. And things sort of developed from there. I was real fortunate, along with a number of other young play-by-play announcers in 1994 when Fox uh, stole the NFC package away from CBS and a number of us were hired to work NFL games. Uh, You know, there's nothing like uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs. There's also nothing like uh, 1 o'clock on a Sunday when they kick it off and you know that millions of people are watching. And I really enjoy working basketball and, and baseball as well. And I've uh, had limited opportunities with some other sports, volleyball at the most recent Olympics. So uh, it's hard to really give an answer. I love them all, but uh, you know, hockey was the goal. Uh, I've loved doing football for 28 years. Um, working 20 Knicks games a year with Walt Clyde Frazier is unbelievable. So very fortunate to be involved in multiple sports. One of your hallmarks is that versatility. I, I get the feeling, and maybe this has happened, where you've been asked to call a game, especially in the pandemic era, on very short notice, uh, and that you would do it well. Is it all about preparation? I guess my question, you know, it, it seems miraculous to me. How do you and some of your brethren do it? Uh, I have on occasion been asked to call something at the last minute. Uh, Preparation is the key. That's what I learned growing up from so many other broadcasters, including three family members and uh, others that I'm not related to. Uh, That was the number one thing that I learned. It's the number one aspect of being a play-by-play broadcaster that I try to impart on high school and college students that I speak to uh, throughout the year. Uh, You can never be over-prepared. I'm probably over-prepared for every game I work. Uh, for an NFL game on a Sunday, I probably put in 30 or 40 hours of work during the week at home. And then we go to practices and talk to the players and coaches and have production meetings and, um, you know, probably read the equivalent of 10 to 15 books every week, but it's, it's newspapers and online publications and articles that are written all over the country. So uh, preparation is definitely the key. I learned that at a young age 
And um, like I said, you can never really be overprepared. I love the challenge of working multiple sports. I've always loved the variety. Uh, one of my first big breaks in high school, uh, Cox Cable of Great Neck came to my school in Port Washington to film a girls basketball game in January of 1984. And I was there to cover the game for the high school paper. And I volunteered, they didn't have any announcers. They had two cameras and a little production van. And I, I announced the game from the second row. The people sitting around me probably thought I was crazy talking to myself. And I met the producer, uh, the late Roy Menton, after the game. And we spoke on the phone the next day, and he hired me. Uh, there was no pay involved, but I didn't care. I just wanted the experience. I would bring friends along as color analysts. And we did high school and even some Division three college games all around Long Island. Basketball, hockey, baseball, football, soccer, lacrosse. And it was an unbelievable experience at that age. Uh, back then, most kids who wanted to do play-by-play did not have the opportunity until college, so I felt I had a three-year head start. Yeah. And, you know, it was really eye-opening to hear you talk about 30 to 40 hours for an NFL game. Makes sense, but I hadn't really thought about that, so I don't know how you how the math works out for your weekly schedule. Let's. I'm going to ask you a few questions about NHL games. Let's maybe a typical regular season game in a typical non-pandemic environment where you're traveling and all that. I'd love to get as much insight and inside information as to your game day preparation. We know about the morning skate and, and maybe some spending some time with coaches and players, but what about the chart is, a, is always going to be a source of fascination for me. Is that crucial for you or when you're doing a lot of teams, is it less crucial because you know them? Let's talk about the chart first. What does that look like for Kenny Albert? Well, I have a file cabinet here to my left that holds, I would say, 90% of the charts that I've used through the past 30 years, believe it or not. Uh, maybe even 95%. I have every football chart as far as I know. And, and I'll go back and refer to them uh, the next time that I do a team. Um, I know some people keep them for a year. Some people keep them for five years. Uh, I have them all for the most part. Keep them. Please the keep them. Late keep 80s, early 90s. And... The football chart is the one that takes the most time. Um, there's more information on the football chart than the other sports because there are uh, over 50 players in each team. Um, all the football broadcasts are national. You don't see one specific team every week, um, as if you were doing radio for the Jets or Giants, for example. So you really have to prepare for both teams. In many cases, we might see a team later in the season that we haven't done already, so you really have to catch up on their season. And again, I'm not using more than 10% of the information that's on there, but I kind of remember it as I'm writing it down. I mean, not everything, but, uh, you know, whether it's name, numbers, little facts and notes. Um, some people now uh, send it out. There are companies that actually make these charts and they do it for you. I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. I feel like you need to do your own charts and your own preparation. You remember things as you're doing it. Um, I once had a conversation with Mike Tirico about this, who feels the same way as I do. And uh, his line to me was, you know, what else are we so busy with that, that we can't prepare our own charts for our broadcasts? Um, you don't want to rely on someone else's work. So anyway, um, I do all my own uh, compiling information from many other sources, mm -hmm. but I'm actually the one putting it together. Um, for hockey, I use uh, the similar chart that I've used for the last 30 years. It's similar to a manila folder but it's a white card stock i guess 11 by 17 it's folded over um on the mid in the middle i have one team on each side and i set it up by line combinations which i know could change at any time but i just formulate it that way 
uh, as a basic template for, for those two teams. On the front, I have general information, the team's record, home, away, power play information, uh, last couple of games, upcoming schedule, anything that might come up during the course of the game, uh, the records in overtime, the records when leading after two periods. And then on the back, it's a score sheet where I keep track of the goals and assists and penalties. So for a TV game, a national game, it is more comprehensive than for a Rangers radio game. I probably don't even need a chart for the Rangers, the team that I'm around all the time. Um, and, and it'll be minimal. You know, I might write the lines in, but not a lot of the biographical information, especially because on radio, you're really just calling the game. You don't have a lot of time to get the information in. And it's, it's you know, it's we live it. It's in our heads. Um, I'll have more on the opposing team side, but for a national broadcast, especially in the playoffs, uh, the actual chart will be more comprehensive. Uh, for basketball, uh, it's the name, number, height, weight, college, how many years in the league, statistics, some other general information about each player. Um, for baseball, I'll have a similar sheet with uh, each player's name, number, uh, how many years he's been a pro, what teams he's played for, statistics, some other biographical information, and then I'll have a scorecard as well on the side. So football is the most comprehensive chart for sure. Hockey might be the least for a radio game uh, for the reasons that I just mentioned. Um but, you know, somebody once said to me, it doesn't have to be a work of art. Uh, you, you know, I'll use different colors on the football charts. I'll use green for a Jets game, for example. So if you look down quickly, you know that green is the Jets and blue might be the Carolina Panthers, for example. Um, but as long as you can read it, uh, you're the one, you know, the play-by-play broadcaster prepares the chart. It's information you need to decipher and read. So um, Dick Vermeil, when he was a broadcaster, his charts were legendary. He had the most perfect handwriting. And the way he organized his charts, and I actually have a copy of one of them. Uh, we once spoke together in a broadcast boot camp for the NFL, so I, he had copies of his charts. So, uh, you know, some folks do have works of art. Others, it might be uh, handwriting that, you know, as if you were reading a, trying to read a doctor's prescription. But as long as you can understand what you write on the chart, that's all that matters. Day of the game, NHL game, national broadcast, on the road, perhaps morning skate lunch um, i'm curious about that time between one and when you go back to the arena for the meeting with the producers and the team are you looking for for your own time to just chill maybe study maybe rest your voice not do you know what does that time look like i'm not a person who takes naps generally mm-hmm. uh the only time i'll ever take naps are maybe if i had a red-eye flight i didn't really sleep the night before um but i'm not usually a napper which most people in the hockey community are, especially players um, and some broadcasters. Pre-pandemic, uh, a typical day on the road, uh, we would go about 10.30 to the morning skate. Most teams hold morning skates at the arenas. Some do it at their practice facility. Uh, you're there for about two hours. It's a lot of schmoozing, as you know. Uh, all the announcers get together from one team and the other team, and we'll talk to each other and exchange information. Uh, you go down to the locker room after the skate, talk to players and coaches, do the same team, the same thing with the visiting team when they get off. You get back to the hotel about 1, like you said, 12, 31 o'clock, have lunch. And there's not really that much time. You know, if you have lunch from 12, 30 to 1, 30, you might have two hours. Then it's time to take a shower and get dressed and get ready to go back to the arena. Um, during the, the pandemic, you know, I was in the bubble in Edmonton, and that was a terrific experience. I mean, the reasons that we were there obviously weren't great with what was going on in in the world and in North America, but 
Um, we felt so safe. They tested us every day. We were inside a fence surrounding the arena and two hotels. And that was a lot different because number one, the arenas were empty that we were working in. Number two, we couldn't go there were, to the morning skates. You know, we weren't allowed to go near players. Coaches couldn't talk to anybody. So all of the press conferences were on Zoom. So you did it from the hotel room. And that's how it worked this past season. Uh, we did not go to morning skates for the most part. Some teams allowed it, but you couldn't talk to anybody. You couldn't go to the locker room. So, you know, unless you wanted to kill an hour or two just watching guys skate around, um, it didn't really make sense to go throughout this past season. And you had a lot more time. Um, I'd get the work done in the hotel. We would go on Zooms. Every team would have these Zoom press conferences with players and coaches. Um, you know, some think that there's a lot of wasted time in, in the morning skates. Coaches feel that way. The players have to get up, get dressed, drive to the arena, put on their equipment, skate for 20 minutes, have a meeting or two, take the equipment off, shower, go back home. It's a long process. It could be tiring. And I know there are some in the media who feel like it's uh, maybe a waste of a couple of hours. You might get one or two good notes. But I always felt like if you got one good note for the broadcast, it was worth it. So yeah. I always enjoyed going uh, to the morning skates. But things did change this past year. We were broadcasting games in empty arenas. Uh, with the Rangers and Knicks, we did not travel for road games. We worked off monitors, as you alluded to earlier, which was a challenge. Um, I felt like you could see about 85% of what you would see normally if you were in the arena. You might not see a penalty being called behind the play. You can't see when the goalie's pulled. You don't see what's going on at the bench area. Um, it wasn't awful. We were able to get the job done. There were little tricks that I learned and that my fellow broadcasters learned. You could delay a second or two, especially on radio, um, and wait to see you know what does come onto the screen. Um, I called many basketball games off the monitor. I just worked volleyball and baseball during the Olympics from Stanford, Connecticut, working off small monitors. So um, again, it wasn't bad. wasn't as bad as I expected. Uh, you would rather be in the arena, but it did cut down on a lot of the traveling. Yeah. So there were some positives and negatives to it. I, re I recall your start with the Baltimore Skipjacks where you got to work with some incredibly insightful and talented coaches uh, and other people and Dave Starman as well. Uh, but was your first game like was your first game at Nass an NHL game at Nassau Coliseum? I have like a hazy memory of that. Help me out here. And what was it like? It was an Islanders away game in oh, Winnipeg. That's right. December 2nd, 1989. Um, Barry Landers was the terrific Islanders radio guy who you know very well, who I just spoke to last week, okay. and he sent me a copy of his book, his autobiography. Nice. Um, and Barry, on occasion, would miss a couple of games for other events, for college events. Um, he would also sometimes slide over to the TV side and fill in for Jigs McDonald. Um, as you know well, because you live through it, um, I was involved uh, on the Islanders radio side uh, as a part-time producer, pre-game, post intermissions, post-game. Uh, Joel Blumberg, the late Joel Blumberg, was a, a good friend of both of ours, and uh, he hired me to get involved on the Islander uh, radio when I was in college. And the studio at WEBD, ironically, was about two blocks from my dorm from New York University. So it was a tremendous experience uh, to fill in on the pre- and post-game shows on the radio and eventually uh, do play-by-play -play for four games during the 89-90 season. The first one was in Winnipeg, uh, the Islanders won the game, I think, 6-2 or 6-3. And I, I think I worked two games at the Nassau Coliseum that year and one other away game. It might have been in Minnesota or Buffalo. And, you 
know, it's ironic when I think back, um, many announcers who traveled a similar path as I did working in the minor leagues uh, would, would be fortunate enough to get the minor league job and then use those tapes to try and get an NHL job. Well, for me, it was the reverse. I actually had the experience of those four Islander games and was able to send that tape from December 2nd, 1989 to some minor league teams. And I think that's what stood out to the Baltimore Skipjacks that I actually had the experience mm-hmm. working the NHL games the previous year, four games. Um, you mentioned some of the coaches. Barry Trotz was our assistant coach. He was my road roommate for two years, every road trip. Uh, Barry and I would room together. He was 27. I was 22 when I was hired. Um, Joel Quenville played for the team the first year. He was at the end of his NHL career. Washington traded for him, sent him to the minor leagues as a depth defenseman. So on that bus, on all the road trips, we had Joel Quenville and Barry Trotz, who are now two of the three winningest head coaches in NHL history. It's incredible. Um, My color analyst for many of the home games was Gene Ubriaco, who had just coached the Pittsburgh Penguins the year before. He was let go, still lived in Baltimore because he had coached there. His kids were in high school at the time. Gene volunteered. He introduced himself to me. Obviously, I knew who he was. Uh, Came down during a preseason game. He said, look, I'm not working this year. I'm going to come to these games anyway. Do you want a color guy? So Gene would do the home games with me. And Dave Starman, who you mentioned, who I knew a little bit, I didn't know him that well yet, but we played in some pickup hockey games in New York uh, with some other media guys, Frank Brown and John Delapina at Skyrink in Manhattan. We all wound up playing pickup hockey together. And I had gotten the job in Baltimore in June of 90. And Dave said to me as we were getting undressed uh, from our hockey equipment from one of these games, uh, hey, if you ever need a color guy, I'm willing to travel. And again, he realized there was no pay involved. He just wanted to get the experience and be around the team and be around the broadcast. So he met me for about 20 games each season on the road in Utica, Binghamton, Springfield, New Haven, all over the Northeast. He would also come down to Baltimore and do some of the home games and would stay in my apartment. We became part-time roommates. So I had Dave Starman at home at times and Barry Trotz on the road. They were my two roommates uh, during the Skipjacks days. But great memories uh, working 80 games a year for two straight years at that level. Uh, invaluable. I wouldn't trade it in for anything. Um, $18,000, my first salary for the year, for the full year, $18,000. Um, also had to work in the team office. I uh, wasn't a very good salesman. I think I, I made three sales. Uh, did some PR, marketing, pick up players at the airport, whatever they needed. Uh, you know, we would all chip in. So um, unbelievable experience. Um from there, went on to Washington, was hired by home team sports, did the Washington Capitals home games on cable for three years. Uh, loved it down there. Did some basketball, some baseball, thought I would be there forever. Uh, and then, ironically, the opportunity came up uh, to come back to New York um, when Howie Rose uh, was hired by Sports Channel to work the Islanders and Mets broadcasts. And I was offered the job doing Rangers radio. It was a real tough decision at the time because I had a great job in Washington. Mm-hmm doing the Capitals, half the games on TV, filling in on Washington Bullets games, now the Wizards, filling in on Orioles games, doing some college basketball and other sports. Um, there were a lot of positives on both sides and made the move. It turned out to be the right move. And here we are 26 years later, still at MSG, and uh, great partners through the years in Sal Messina, Brian Mullen, and now Dave Maloney for the last 15 or 16 years. And that AHL experience is so important to, to everyone. You're, you're connected with the Rangers, uh, your family, and Mar, uh, your dad, Marv. Uh, 
but I think it's a compliment to you that I was even just watching recently. I think it was Islanders Tampa game six, and you call that game. And a lot of announcers in your position, I don't mean to speak for all fans. This is a sense I get. A lot of announcers in your position be like, oh, he's the Rangers guy, right? We know you grew up on the island, and we know that you did. But you, you seem to skirt that you don't get that he's the ranger guy which is which is high praise do you think in addition to your history do you, does any of that have to do with your style i mean you, you you call the islander goal like this is your team you know as you would for tampa as well but how do you approach that yeah i mean those two game four and game six the bavillier overtime goal and in game four the block on the mcdonough shot at the end by pollock i mean those are moments that will, you know, be etched in my memory for, for years to come. Just unbelievable moments. I grew up going to the Nassau Coliseum to so many great games through the years and had the opportunity early on uh, to work those Islander games. So a lot of special memories in that building. Um, I think uh, part of what you said might be just years and years built up of uh, working national games, maybe in other sports as well. Um, it is a bit of a challenge, uh, you know, especially if the Rangers are playing in a national game, because you know that if they're playing the Flyers, fans of the Flyers who are aware that I do the Rangers on radio, they might hear it one way when I'm really trying to be 50-50. Uh, on a national game, you have to get excited for both teams' goals. Uh, that's just how it is. Just like on a national football game, you have to play it down the middle. And I know that, um, you know, we all look at social media and – Guys like Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, uh, when I worked with Moose Johnston and Tony Saragusa, um, you know, we would hear comments that, uh, oh, you hate our team. We don't hate any teams. We're, we're calling the game down the middle. The thing with hockey and basketball and baseball, the fans are so used to listening to their local announcers on both TV and radio. And I get it because I'm a local guy as well. So when the national guys come in, Fans aren't very happy about it. You know, they want to hear Brendan Burke and Butch Goring on an Islander game or Howie and Eddie Westfall back in the day or Howie and Joe Micheletti. When the national guys come in, especially in the playoffs, they're so used to hearing their own announcers. But I can guarantee to all the listeners that on a national game, we're calling it down the middle. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it means a lot that you said that, you know, as far as um, Islander fans, not necessarily thinking of me as a Ranger guy, but thinking of me as someone that, uh, does call the game uh, down the middle with respect for both sides. And maybe the style has a little bit to do with it. But, uh, you know, Doc Emmerich for years and years was the devil's announcer, but he would call the Stanley Cup final. Uh, back in the day, Jiggs worked the Stanley Cup final. He was the Islanders announcer. Uh, you have it in basketball with Mike Breen, the Knicks announcer, calling the NBA finals. Uh, Joe Buck for many, many years was the voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. And then he called the Cardinals in the World Series against American League teams, so we've seen it in all sports. Um, it's probably a sign of respect when people don't think of you as that local guy, uh, but I really try to be fair, and I, I am conscious of it when I am working a Rangers game on the national side, and I remind myself to get just as excited when the other team scores. Now, if the game's at MSG and the other team scores, the crowd's quiet. If the game's in Philly and the Flyers score against the Rangers, the crowd's going crazy, so that might affect what my call sounds sure. like as well. Yeah. Do you have one and only one NHL game that you would say is, you know, maybe it's a combination of your work, the game itself that stands above the rest at this still early stage of your career, my young friend? Well, 
I don't know if it's the early stage, maybe the middle, hopefully. Uh, let's go middle, okay. Second uh, period. Well, I, I have to think back. Uh, obviously, my first NHL game, uh, that Islander-Winnipeg game, uh, is right up there. Um, had the opportunity to call the Rangers winning the Cup for NHL radio. I was still working in Washington. And a crazy set of circumstances, um, Howie Rose had done NHL radio in 93, LA Kings-Canadians final, with Mike Keenan. Ironically, they did the NHL radio national broadcast in 94 in the conference final when the Rangers were playing the Devils. I got a call how he was scheduled to work the final in 94 for the NHL. There was only one problem. He was doing a number of the Rangers games on radio and that would be his priority. So I wound up calling the 94 Rangers Canucks series with Sherry Ross on NHL radio. Ironically, uh, met my wife for the first time after game five. If the Rangers had won, I probably would have gone to some kind of a celebration at MSG. Rangers lost the game. I wound up going to my friend's apartment. My wife was there, and uh, that's the first time we ever met. So a little bit of karma there. That's um, amazing. So that game, you know, game seven in 94 with the Rangers winning the Cups right up there. Uh, the Rangers run to the conference final and the final in 2014 and 15, uh, but also working the Western Conference final for NBC over the last seven or eight years. And also have to put it in the top five really the top three on my list i would say along with my first game and the rangers winning the cup is calling uh the tampa bay lightning on television uh i called the stanley cup final on nbc this year for the first time following the retirement of doc emmerich so um the goal of any play-by-play announcer is to call a championship on television whether it's the super bowl world series nba finals or stanley cup and for the first time this year had the opportunity to call the Stanley Cup on TV, so that has to be up there on the list. And if you're talking hockey, Chris, in my top five, the women's gold medal game in 2018 in Pyeongchang yeah. uh, for NBC, USA over Canada in the shootout. I have to include that one in there as well. Oh, absolutely. Amazing game and great job by everybody on that broadcast. Is there one, so I, I guess I set up the, the happy one, is there either one game that, and I didn't hear it, I don't mean to you know, blow smoke up your ear, but have you, have you had one game or one big mistake where it just, you know, it stuck with you for a while, like you just weren't at your best? Or you blew something? Or you blew yeah, I don't think there was really a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all make mistakes at yeah. times, you know, whether it's a misidentification of a player. Yeah. There are always moments we want back, and you're always the hardest on yourself. Um, you know, hockey, there could be instances where you uh, you don't see if the puck went in, if it hit the crossbar, the post bounced out quickly. A lot of times on a deflection, you might not have the right goal scorer, depending on your angle. So there are a lot of moments like that that take place. Uh, you try to keep them to a minimum, but there really hasn't been one uh, really bad moment. You know, I remember getting the hiccups during a game in L.A., a Rangers radio game in L.A., and reaching for the cough button every time the hiccups were about to come out. So a couple of, you know, funny-type moments like that. Uh, my first game with the Skipjacks, my first uh, AHL game, Gina Briaco was with me at Hershey, and I was my own engineer at the time. They didn't have production people for us at that level, so I had to set up all the equipment, and I'm not exactly a technological whiz. It's my first game. I'm probably nervous. Uh, just got hired a couple of months prior. I get a note handed up to me from the press box, which is right in front of the broadcast booth. In the second period, call your station. You're off the air either Gene or I had accidentally kicked out the phone jack that was plugged in 
uh, which which allowed the broadcast to be transmitted to the radio station. So uh, we scrambled for a couple of minutes, got it rehooked up, and away we went. But yeah, I thought I was going to get fired. First broadcast, one of us knocked uh, knocked uh, the phone cord out, and we were off the air for a few moments. Wow. We only have a couple of minutes left. I have two last questions for you I'd love to get in. And one one is, uh, we know how much uh, your dad, legendary Marv Albert, uh, has meant to you, and your uncles, uh, Steve and Al, who I've watched so much of, and we were big fans of theirs as well. But I'm curious, you know, whether it's current day or even in your formative days, who are some of the announcers, maybe of all kinds, not just play-by-play announcers, reporters, who you know you would suggest to, well, who've meant a lot to your work, and uh, it would also be great influences for people to watch them at their jobs. Well, aside from my three family members yeah. you mentioned, uh, because I would listen and watch, you know, all their games growing up as a youngster, um, but so many of the other New York announcers. We didn't have cable TV until I was seventeen or eighteen, so I was a big radio listener. So you know whether it was. Uh, John Sterling back in the day on Islanders and Nets games, uh, Howie and Mike Emmerich and Sam Rosen on hockey during my high school, you know, teenage years into college. Uh, they were all big influences and, and people that I knew very well, but also the guys that I listened to. But of the current day announcers, uh, Al Michaels is right at the top of the list. Uh, Mike Tirico, Ian Eagle, Joe Buck, guys like that. Um, I don't want to leave anybody out, but. Um, as a kid, I would have to say it was uh, Howie Rose, Doc Emmerich, Sam Rosen, and then, you know, the old-time uh, Mets and Yankees announcers, Bob Murphy and um, you know, Frank Messer, Phil Rizzuto, Bill White on the Yankees, and Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner, Spencer Ross, Marty Glickman, you know, all the guys that we listened to as kids. Yeah, I love Frank um, Frank Messer. Um, well, Larry Hirsch, I listened to Devil's Games. Oh, yes. Yeah. First, first voice of the Devils. Barry Landers, I think, was a really underrated, terrific hockey radio announcer. I had the privilege of pretending to be a color commentator sitting next to Barry on a few games. Uh, he, he was amazing, is amazing. Um, and then lastly, your advice for future, I'm talking about teenagers, uh, men and women, boys and girls who, who want to be play-by-play announcers. I'm asked just generally, and my instinct is to just say, you have to practice it. You have to go somewhere talking to a tape recorder it used to be now you can do it into your phone is is that is it the repetitiveness of that what, what is your biggest advice to future play-by-play announcers that's a big part of it i had a tape recorder as a kid and i would do games off the tv in my room i would take it to madison square garden shea stadium nassau coliseum when i was old enough now you could do it into an iphone it is the repetitiveness getting the reps you get better with each one uh, but I also tell the high school and college students, and I speak to hundreds of them every year in these various sportscasting camps, uh, one out of Hofstra, one in Westchester, which Bruce Beck runs, uh, a couple in New Jersey with the Nets announcers. Um, but the number one thing that I tell them is get as much experience as possible in high school and college, whether it's writing for the newspaper, the yearbook, some kind of a website, a blog. Um, a lot of the colleges now have great TV and radio programs. Some high schools do as well. Um, ACC schools, for example, the Big Ten, the ACC Network, the Big Ten Network, they hire college students to work behind the scenes and to do some of the games, not necessarily in basketball and football, but some of the other sports. So uh, there are loads of opportunities out there. You just kind of have to know where to look. And not everybody's going to want to be on the air. 
There are so many jobs behind the scenes on a typical NFL game that I work. There are 60 or 70 men and women involved in getting that broadcast on the air from the producer, the director, the cameraman and women, the graphics folks, uh, the folks that handle the replays, uh, right on down the line. So, so many jobs available in this business, uh, not just in front of the camera or the microphone. That's great advice. I wasn't thinking about the college networks like Big Ten Network. That's great, great advice. And all the sports, right? You could do volleyball. You could do right. show yeah. all your, you know, it's not. Experience. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Kenny Albert, my friend, it's been a while, but I can't thank you enough for finding the time to do this and to join us on Hockey Press Pass. Thanks, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Uh, hope to see you one of these days. And to all the listeners, hopefully you're staying safe and healthy, and uh, we'll look forward to hockey season. Absolutely. Thank you, Kenny. Thanks, Chris. Hey, guys, it's Pat, and I want to tell you about Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village on Long Island's North Shore. A huge selection of hobby and family strategy board games for sale, from old favorites to the hottest new releases. A library of over 400 board games for open play every day. Our staff help you pick out games and show you how to play. Find your crowd at one of our Magic, The Gathering, Pokemon, or Dungeons & Dragons events for adults and kids, including our D&D after-school program, offered both virtually and in person. A full-service cafe, food and drink, coffee and desserts, beer and wine, fun and friends. Located at 307 Main Street in Huntington Village, go to MainStreetBoardGameCafe.com for more information. Main Street Board Game Cafe. Unplug your game. Hey, everybody. It's Chris. I want to take a moment to thank and tell you all about Instat Hockey. I'm a subscriber and think of the world of their product. They were the first major company to jump on board as a presenting sponsor of my podcast. I can't thank them enough. Instat Hockey offers the largest statistical data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Their work is trusted at every level of the game by coaches, scouts, players, and of course, members of the media, like the people we spotlight each week on Press Pass. The Instat Hockey platform saves the user hours of time watching game film as team and player statistics are pre-cut into separate playlists, including players' individual shifts. All video clips can be edited, shared, and downloaded by the user. I've used their platform and so have many of the coaches I've worked with, so check them out. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more info. instatsport.com hockey. All right, this is producer Pat Boyle alongside, of course, Chris Botta, and it is fan inbox time. And today's question comes from Daniel B., at the really real DB, and he says, Hi, Chris. This is something I was always interested in knowing. Are the players as bland in real life as they are in the monotonous interviews they give? I always assumed they were not the robots they appear to be in the media, but we rarely see them show any real personality. Thanks, Dan. Well, yeah, well, great question, Dan, or at the really real DB. That's fun to say. Um, Dan, you know, you are right. They are, they are not as bland in real life as they are in, in the interviews you see. I don't think this is the player's fault. It may not be anybody's fault. Uh, the, the players of the NHL, and I was around them you know, very closely uh, for a long time, about 20 years with the Islanders, always had me laughing, always challenged me. Um, they were great people and also a lot of fun. And I will say it is tough to get that out there. Uh, I would say that 
the teams. It's on. It's not the league's fault. It's not the players' fault. The teams that want to promote players, uh, it's on them to be more creative, to be innovative. We do see this in some cases on their social media handles and on the videos and the content that they crank out, and that's the place to look. I wouldn't get caught up in a post-game interview, and I certainly wouldn't get too caught up in, in deciding what a guy is like on a between-periods interview. No disrespect whatsoever to the great people who do those sideline uh, reports in between periods. But when you have two questions with a guy who just got off the ice in an intense game, you know, it is very rare if you think about it. How many of those interviews have you seen where you've come out of it saying, oh, I got some great insight there? You know, I see it in the other sports, too. They make a big deal that, you know, interviewing a manager in between. And it looks good. But are you ever actually getting much insight? I would ask you that, actually. Yeah, too. no, I mean, right. I mean, it's so hard to kind of, I feel like, just turn off that switch, that competitive switch, and then say, okay, let me now try to give a wisdom-filled answer when the competitive juices are flowing, you're just going to give a, a quick answer and get to the locker room. In most cases, right? And, and you know, you see it in the NBA, too. And I think that um, they just, a lot of times on TV, it just comes across with all the sports. Again, not singling out hockey right now, but is if, like, look, we had the guy on. Okay, you had the guy on, and it's the middle of the game, and that looks good. Or you had Boone on, you know, at the fifth inning. But did he ever? Did he actually tell you something? And realistically, you know, can we expect him to say much? Is he? Is he going to tell you who's coming in in the seventh? In the fifth, you know. So um, I get that. So I would say let's, you know, the emphasis should be on the teams that want to do that, to be creative and innovative, and also, you know, I think social media is an opportunity, but it can be a challenging one at times. Yeah, definitely. But that, yeah, I mean, like you said, though, Chris, that is the spot there where, you know, these athletes get to show their personality and you get to peel back the curtain. It's not as it's not always as easy, especially in game media sessions, like you said, but also the post game where the emotions are still running pretty high and pretty raw. It's, it's only what, 20, usually 20 minutes or less after the game ends that they're answering these questions. And especially if they lost. They're not gonna, they don't want to expel upon negative emotions or, or you know what they did wrong or how why things went badly. So yeah, I think you're right with the social media, that's definitely the place where you get to see their personality the most. The, the coach interview, I know like you know with the Islander broadcast, I will I will sometimes I'll even set the, the, you know I'll record Trotz's post game because he he's had some time to cool off. He has his stat sheets. He he's going to be critical if they lost. He'll say the right things if they win. He'll he'll he every time I put him on and other coaches too, they'll say something, you know, that that is often say something that's enlightening. But the players it's tough and you know we're, we're doing this after Howie Rose told us about social media and him being on and you know as his longtime friend I'm like man Howie you made it he said he was 67 I think you made it this far and now you're going on Twitter you know like you make one big mistake and I think that's part of it with the players right if you see Kucherov you know he you know he drank too much after uh, the winning the Stanley Cup Ovechkin sometimes the hockey the culture everybody's so buttoned up that then people become critical if a player speaks his mind, Kucherov made fun of the Canadians fans. Well, it's competitive. Like, yeah. I think the Canadians fans can take it. Uh, and on social media, I think of a player like Curtis Gabriel has been, you know, very thoughtful in the in the comments that he's trying to make about social justice and, and everything else. Uh, but then he gets some heat back. So it is not easy. Uh, again, it is up to the players. 
Uh, but I understand everything is going to be managed because I think what most players will tell you is, yeah, I would love to share more about myself, but where's the, is there enough upside? Because that downside, if it goes wrong on me, if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, you know, it comes back to haunt. So uh, to answer your question, uh, Daniel, uh, you know, the, the players are not robots. They, these are terrific guys. And I think, you know, hopefully more over time uh, with ESPN and TNT and the regional networks, we'll continue to see more and more ways to get to know these players and see that they are more than what you seeing in those post-game interviews. And I think really quickly, too, I think a lot of that is on the league itself, especially with these new TV deals, marketability, the ability to market these players uh, in, in commercials and advertisements and other stuff where you see them just outside of the competition itself and, and then also where you see them off of social media. You know, when you're watching a commercial and you see Ovechkin do an ad for something and you can see him kind of be humorous in it, that allows you to see him out off the ice and, and out of the locker room and also off his social media. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't think it's a commentary on, on NBC Sports Network who did some good work, but I believe the league is hopeful uh, that ESPN certainly brings a level of visibility and, and creativity like the, the famous Sports Channel uh, Sports Center commercials, excuse me. Uh, and I know with TNT, I, you know, you hope that the league doesn't try to overmanage. Let let the networks, let the producers, the people who do this well, uh, let them do their jobs, and, and I suspect they will. Uh, and it, it'll be, I think as time goes on, we're going to see and learn more about these players. Uh, Pat Boyle, producer Pat Boyle, great job as always. I just want to say to the fans that I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hockey Press Pass podcast. Please rate us, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at presspodcast at gmail.com with questions or anything else. My thanks to Pat. My thanks to Howie Rose, who was fantastic. Executive producer Danny Ryland Carney. Marketing director Sally Kinsman. All the colleagues who have very generously provided ideas and counsel as we continue to build this podcast. Most especially our thanks to you, the fans and listeners. Please check back every Thursday morning for the latest edition of Hockey Press Pass. Thank you. Thank you.